You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello, and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 131, for Monday the 10th of December 2018. My guest today is Edward Downward, a Canadian author who describes himself as a writer of science fiction adventures. His debut novel is called Synergy of Hopes, and it was published in 2015. The second novel, Into the Crucible, was published earlier this year. Edwin has also written One's World, which is a teaser into his science fiction Worlds Together universe. We've been exchanging messages for some time now on social media, so I thought it was high time that we got together on the podcast to discuss sci-fi and self-publishing. I began by asking Edwin what made him choose sci-fi as his preferred genre. Really, that comes back to my sister Susan, which gets into the girls don't like sci-fi. Well, in the 70s, my older sister, well, my younger sister, because they're both older, was really into sci-fi, and she had a shelf full of um, Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov and Andre Norton. And I just got into the Andre Norton and then branched out from there, and I've lived my entire life reading sci-fi, watching sci-fi on TV. So sci-fi has always been there for me. Now, you and I had a little exchange the other day because I'd made a comment about, I think it was Space 1999, and I was quite surprised, um, particularly, I was trying to think what it was, it must have been the 70s Space 99, I was quite surprised that it had travelled um, to, have you always lived in Vancouver, but over to Canada? Yeah, um, but yeah, I basically grew up in this whole, what we call Metro Vancouver area. So, so yeah, and you're right, we got all those shows, I mean, I was watching Doctor Who in the early 70s, and we got UFO and then Space 1999. So you've had the same. and you, So you must have also then watched um, 60s Star Trek. Did you watch it with William Shatner as well? Yes, actually. We did watch Star Trek, which was kind of fun because when it first came out, Dad wouldn't let us watch it because he thought we were too young. It would be too scary for us. But a couple of years later, we were all watching it. But, you know, stuff, I know we just laugh at it now and you see it now. But stuff was scary. I showed my kids uh, an old Doctor Who uh, with John Pertwee, I think it was. And it had some kind of um, robot that was quite obviously looked like boxes with tin foil on them. And uh, that would have been terrifying when we were kids. But I guess you just, the more you see, the more you get used to, I guess. I, I suppose so. Because, I mean, we also had uh, programs like the uh, the Twilight Zone. And then after that, a program called The Outer Limits. Mm. which did the same type of thing, or, well, which was similar to uh, Twilight Zone, but in an hour format instead of a half-hour format. And the books that you mentioned that were on your sister's shelf, too. So, um, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, I can remember as, as a kid, Isaac Asimov, you know, these were amazing uh, uh, books. But, I mean, I think they probably inspired a whole generation, don't you think, of sci-fi enthusiasts? Because there wasn't that much going in those days. You know, what didn't seem to be as many books around in those days. Well, I was going to say it's hard to say because this is what my sister's shelf consisted of. There were a few other things like she introduced me to the uh, Black Stallion series, which is about a boy and a horse. 
a series called Silver Brumby, which is about talking horses in Australia, or intelligent horses in Australia, and, and a few other things like that. And she did have, she also had a, a humongous comic collection at the time. So I got to read a lot of the original Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and all that. So I'm not familiar with all the, the TV reboots and all that, but I, like I said, I got introductions to, sometimes she even had issue one on some of them. Wow. I think what they'd be worth nowadays. Did you um, get uh, 2000 AD was a comic that was incredibly influential on me. It came out, I think, when I was at secondary school. I must have been 11 or 12. Did you get 2000 AD out there? No, that one doesn't ring a bell. Uh, Judge no, Dredd it had in it. That's probably the best known character. Okay. No, I, I only know Judge Dredd because of the movie, so... Ah, oh, right. Oh, you see, I was, I was an early adopter with Judge Dredd. He was, um, yeah, he was a comic called 2000 AD, which was, um, well, it weren't that many people had it in those days, but I loved it. I was straight into it. And it was, again, you know, full of sci-fi. And interestingly, in that comic, they resurrected, um, Dan Dare. They kind of rebooted Dan Dare in that comic. Uh, was that, was Dan Dare part of your childhood at all? Ah, the name sounds familiar, but I can't place it. So I may have been introduced to him, but didn't know too much about him then. So as you as you got slightly older, so as we moved into sort of secondary school years, um, I'm just interested in what you were kind of watching on telly then, because I was kind of watching what was it? Um, do you remember early Battlestar Galactica was a bit was not very good actually, was it? But there was the old you know Flash Gordons and Buck Rogers. What kind of stuff are you watching um, when when you were well, that sort of age? Well, that, that, now now we have fun because to this day, while it is really clunky. I think the original Battlestar is far superior to the reboot. And I remember uh, Buck Rogers, the TV show. Mm. I never saw any of the movies, but I remember the TV show of Buck Rogers. We watched that a lot. Now, I'm interested to hear you say uh, that about uh, Battlestar Galactica, because I thought, the, even then, I thought the Cylons were rubbish, you know, in those days. But to be honest with you, I, I didn't watch it because um, there was, was it Buck Rogers had some silly robot on, didn't it? And then uh, if I, Tweaky or something, I can't remember. <clears throat> yes, yeah, that, that little robot that would always do the little, now I don't remember how, exactly how to do it, but he had this sort of little beeping noise that he would start with and then he'd talk. Yeah, the robots weren't good in those days. And, and the Cylons, I didn't think were, you know, they were just like, you, you probably don't get this, but people in the UK will get this reference. We used to have the, th you might you might know it. We used to have these things called the Smash Robots in the UK for Smash Potato, Instant Mash Potato. And they were just, they were just comedy robots. And, and the Cylons used to remind me of the Smash Robots, which is why I couldn't take them uh, seriously. They, were, they really were just a joke. Uh, what I'll do is I'll put the video on your resources page, Edwin, so that people who don't know what the Smash Robots are can see what I'm talking about. But um so, so why do you think it was superior then? Because I thought the reboot was brilliant. Um, maybe it's just my attitude, but I liked. I found the uh, the reboot from the start was too dark. I don't like my stuff particularly dark. And for well, mind you, the original sort of ended off leaving us nowhere, and then they did that really dumb nineteen eighty thing, which which I. I which I think should be uh, ejected into space. Hmm. But uh, it's, I don't know. There's just a, a, a feel about it. The second one felt more to me like a soap opera hmm. Hmm. than it did a, uh, you know, a, a, a sci-fi show. 
It's interesting there, so, so I can see the differentiator now because you see, I like my sci-fi dark. I like my spaceships battered and dirty and oily. I don't like them too pristine, um, you know. So, so, but whereas you're going, so if you're not into dark science fiction, where, where does that take us into the kind of science fiction you like? You, you just kind of after lighter stories, are you? At that, I wouldn't say lighter stories because. Continue to this day, what I believe the the very best sci-fi I've ever encountered, and I'll actually go so far as to say I try to pattern my universe after this was Babylon Five, where you had I mean I mean you had people who have high ideals, you had people with low ideals, and but nobody was clean. Everybody was dirty, even if they had the right motives. Everybody got a little bit dirty. Everybody got a little bit grungy. And yet there was a hope theme going throughout it that uh, that they never lost. That's really interesting that you go for Babylon 5 because Babylon 5 is is actually the first spaceship I can remember that was really dirty. You know, it was a real kind of battered um uh you know it was it was a functional spaceship Babylon 5, wasn't it? It didn't feel pristine say like the Enterprise always did. It looked like I mean the, the Enterprise looked like it had a 24/7 cleaning team going around it polishing everything whereas Babylon 5 felt filthy, dirty, oily, and like it was always breaking. So it's interesting that you've gone for that, because I'd have put that in darker science fiction. But the theme of hope, you say, which is interesting there too. Yeah, there's, you know, even in the darkest moments, there was always a, a, an undercurrent of, of hope. that You know, this isn't a, a slide into oblivion. There wasn't, you know, another thing about the reboot of Battlestar Galactica is they end it, basically saying everything we just did was meaningless. It's just going to happen again. So they sort of wiped any hope out from underneath the everybody's cover by saying it actually didn't matter. We obviously, we, we've shared a lot of um, TV interests, and uh, I think you know any any sci-fi fan would know most of what we've been talking about there. Um, when did that kind of love of reading and television spark an interest in maybe creating something of your own? Um, this way we have to go backwards because I don't remember a time when I didn't want to write. I mean, as, as far back as grade five, we had to do regular book reports. And I submitted a book report, which was, this is my story idea. This is where I'd like it to go. I haven't completed any of these things, but this is my story. And I convinced the teacher to give me credit for it. He actually said, yes, this is a legitimate uh, book report. You can put it in your accepted pile. There's all, as I said, there's always been a part of me that wanted to do writing. How old were you then when you sort of started then to, to complete the stories, you know, to plan the stories, complete the stories, and move towards, however gently, something that might be a book or published? Well, when I graduated high school, I had the idea for a book. But I... Ran or I got myself. Well, you know, this is back in the days when you were using typewriters. We didn't have computers yet. I didn't have my first Apple at at this point. But on that one, I got into the loop of oh, one chapter, two chapters. I got to do some edits. Oh, well, these edits really look messy. So I've now got to retype the whole thing to make it look neat. Oh, I've come up with a new problem. So I I got into the first three chapter loop. And. Uh, then there was a period where I didn't do much in the way of writing, and it wasn't until literally 1995 when it 
when the word came to me, he said, now is the time to get serious. Now is the time to take all your ideas and make a real novel out of it. And somewhere in there, I also got, you know, somebody said something about, you know, finish the thing. You know, instead of going back into that old loop that I'd had 15 years earlier, I now had the idea that I don't have to make this perfect, but I have to get a story completed. Now, 1995, Edwin, was the dark ages of publishing. I mean, this is I'm just trying to think where we were in 95. I'm just, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't even have a home computer in 1995. So that's like ages ago. So I'm taking it in 1995. The only thing on your radar must have been traditional at that time. Is that right? Uh, basically, it was the only thing out there. It was the only thing anybody talked about. And this is something we come up with, with later with your other questions is at that point, except for my sister and a couple of other people who also dabbled in writing, I didn't have any community. And, uh, you know, the Internet, I, I'd been using computers for 10 years by then, but the Internet was an, a new thing. So I didn't have any Internet connections and I didn't know what else was going out there. I just knew that you finished a book, you polished it up a little bit, and you sent it off to Back then, actually, you still thought in terms of sending it to the publisher. I hadn't really heard about the whole you've got to send it through an agent and then who will get it get you to a, a publishing house. So, yeah, that would have been my idea back then that create a story, submit it to the publishing houses, and then the publishing house will take the story that I wrote and polish it up. I mean, that's what you're paying them for is to take – your rough draft and make it into a commercial ready product. At least that was my idea even back then. So did you get out that three chapter loop then in 1995? Did we get something finished? Yes. In fact, I mean, that's when I started on what eventually became my, uh, my first published novel synergy of hopes. That's when I started it and I did get the first draft done. I'm not saying I was fast or anything about it. It was the type of thing where you were etching out a little bit here and etching out a little bit there, so a few hundred words every other day type of thing. Nothing, nothing stupendously fast, especially when you look at today's market. But uh, I did finish the book, and I did write a second, a full second draft of it. And it was at that point that I knew I needed to reach out. And so I went to the internet and found, heck, that was back in the days I had to go, I found a Usenet group wow. where, where you could get critiques of your work. And how did it go for a first take? What were those critiques like? I would say they were all over the place because the, the other thing I had to quickly learn was, uh, you know, that I need to join the uh, Thick Skin Club when it comes to having people look at your work. So you'd get a critique back, and you'd have to sit on it for a week because you didn't know how to handle it. And then you'd finally dig into it, and you'd break it apart, and you'd find, and you'd find out, yes, there's something I can do with this. Plus, of course, learning the, the infamous, I don't have to accept everything my critiquers tell me. I am allowed to say, no, that's not going to work. Yeah, there's some good lessons in that bit there. Number one is the thick skin, and number two let it sit, I think is a good lesson, you know, because 
you've got that kind of wounded pride, haven't you? And that defensiveness when you, when you see anything that might be negative. And then, then after that, you don't have to accept everything. You are ultimately the master of your story. So I think there's a good advice in there, um, for anybody who's taking, um, well, feedback and criticism for the first time. But there must have been some good stuff in there, Edwin, wasn't there? Was it, was it sort of largely positive? Um, overall, it was positive. You know, people were telling me they liked the, uh, the the story. They liked the characters. I had a whole kerfuffle over the beginning because I had people telling me I started too late because I started in the action and they didn't know the characters and I didn't know how to put backstory in without doing info dumps. So, in fact, I wrote a chapter before that to uh, build up to that moment because that was the only way I could figure out how how to bring the character alive and give character background that everybody, you know, pe- there are points later on in the story where people came up and said, but you never told us about this. This is cheating, which is another fun one right there. But that that's the whole backstory question. Yeah, yeah, yes, and foreshadowing. And there's all these things that you have to to uh, kind of learn about as you go along, I guess, with uh, writing. I, mean, I am interested because you've been sort of at it for so long and you were there in the early days of the internet. It's very hard to imagine kind of a world for writers. We're really spoiled for choice so many places to go for information and support in those days i mean there, there must be barely barely nothing in those days to support authors was, you know what what were you using you talked about that group but was that was that pretty well it what you had to rely on um in the beginning you know yeah in the beginning like i said it was a usenet group and then a bunch of the people on that group started talking about a new website that had just come up and uh, I went over there and joined that and, and stuck with them for actually for, for a few years until it started to uh, fall off. Well, the science fiction site started to fall off. There's other things that were still going on strong on this site, but you could no longer get any interest in science fiction. So I had to, uh, to, to, to search again. And this would have been, again, so this would have been the early 2000s, 2000, well, 2002 to 2005 in that area. And and yeah, it was it, it was difficult for somebody who was out of the loop to find stuff because you just didn't know where to look. Now I must look at these timescales because you started to write Synergy of Hopes in 1995, and I, I think it kind of came out as your debut novel in is that 2015? Is that have I got the timeline correct now? Yes, that's right. It did take me forever to get that up and polished and into a place where I. I where it needed to go out. And what kind of word counts uh, did you have in that book? Um, it, fi- it, it came out to, the final version was 110,000 words. Oh, it's a huge book then. So, it, so I mean, that's actually pretty, um, pretty ambitious for a first try, isn't it? 100,000. Well, that was another thing, because I'd been told that a uh, sci-fi book needed to be 100,000. It wasn't until later that I started hearing about the difference, you know, these are the lengths of books for different types of genres. I'd been told that a book had to be 100,000. So that was sort of my target uh, range anyways. Wow. I, I've never written a book to 100,000 words yet. I think I've done 92, I think, so the most I've done, but never written to 100 yet. So I, I, I always, like, gasp when people tell me that's the length of their first book because that is such a – that's a massive undertaking. I think I wrote to 50,000 in my first book. It's a huge undertaking. Do you think, I'm asking you this for you know people who haven't written a book yet, 
would you still go a hundred thousand, or do you think, knowing what you know now, you'd go for for, for something slightly less long? For that book, I'd still go for a hundred thousand because it at one point it was shorter, but it had a, a a group of critiquers who all read the final chapter and all said it's not finished yet. And I had to sit down with that one and say, it's not finished yet. Why is it not finished yet? What do I need to finish it? And that added uh, you know, another 15000 onto the end of it before I actually came up with a finish. And I'm taking it, things like you know, plotting, uh, were, were, were they non-existent or, or did you actually sort of, were you working to a framework? I had a very rough framework at that point, but I was, I mean, I was a panther. To a large degree, I, I'm still a panther. Nowadays, I call myself a planter because I've discovered that I need to know, and I've I done this even with synergy, I need to know where I'm going. But getting into the weeds of how to get from A to B always slows me down or shuts me off or sends me off. So there's a degree where I need to just get down and write, but I need to know where I'm writing to. Hmm. Hmm. The, the other thing I'm interested to explore with you, Edward, is because you started writing in 1995 when the whole publishing landscape was completely different, as we discussed, you only could publish traditionally then, to when you actually uh, you know, published uh, Synergy of Hopes in 2015. Did you try to do the old agent and, and traditional publisher thing in between times, or did it was it always eventually going to be self-published for you? Well, as I was writing, I wasn't certain. I mean... In, in my mind, there was only one option. And then we got the very beginning of the whole Kindle world and the whole point that self-publishing has now become viable. But – and then I ran into a whole pro- question of the people I was in line or in connection with online were all waffling. Do we move to this self-publishing model or do we stick with the traditional model? And then there's a lot of talk about the, the smaller publishers, what have become known these days as the, as the little indie publishers. And I did try submitting Synergy to a series of these smaller publishers. Well, this is where my, my preset idea of thinking the publisher is going to take my rough and turn it into polish. And all of these smaller publishers came back and basically said the same thing. There's a story there, but it's not ready. And that's when I sat down and said, if it's not ready, I've taken as far as I can take it. If I have to start putting out and paying for the editors and stuff to help me take it to the next level, then why am I giving the publisher or paying the publisher to do that when I'm paying it out of pocket? And that's when I made the decision that I'm going to put my money into it and I'm going to self-publish it. So you went to a you went through a an editor then, presumably before you did that. And how did that work out for you? How, how what kind of feedback did you get when you were sort of going to a professional? The first editor, I mean, I did go in for a developmental edit, and that editor challenged me a lot, particularly in the beginnings, and uh, sort of faded at the end. I'm I. I'm in a, a strange – I'm not quite certain to think about it because he basically reached a point in saying, I've told you everything you need, and everything beyond this is going to change if you do what I what I suggested in the end. So he sort of cut the uh, – what I'd say he cut the edit off early. 
but it did, like I said, it pointed me in the right direction. It told me that there were, particularly in terms of uh, description and detail and getting getting information that's in my head on the page so the reader could find it. So it, in the end, it was an enormously great experience because I like I did have somebody who pulled no punches in terms of uh, walking me through it. It strikes me then that your your first book and and it obviously you were writing it over a period of time. You've been through a number of experiences, but it, it strikes me that it's almost like a university of of learning that book that you cut your teeth entirely on, on that first book and went through the whole sort of learning process in, in writing and publishing that book. Is that, is that fair to say? For the most part, I did, during that time, I did engage in a variety of challenges. Some of them were challenges completely outside my universe, and some of them were challenges where, where I said, oh, I could write a short story to explore this backstory idea I have. So I did create a number of short stories, some of them flash fiction, some of them a little bit longer, and I did submit them for into these contests and got feedback on them. So I was sort of branching out on the sides in addition to, to my main focus. So what was self-publishing like for you in, in 2015? I mean, you said you've been into computers for, for many years, pre-internet days. I'm taking it, it all came fairly naturally to you, did it? Or did you struggle with any part of that? No, for the uh, from from the technical side, I had very little problem there there are specific things you know you, when you're trying to upload when you're trying to upload to the different sites you'll get back sometimes these weird error messages about something you'd have to sit back at your manuscript and say what does this mean and what do i have to do to make it go through but uh for me that was all just a a, a technical problem it's no it was no worse than uh the other thing that I've done in the year, over the years is um, computer programming on different levels. And, and so in, in some ways, it was no different than looking at a computer program and asking, why didn't this function work? And you've got a paperback as well of the book. I was trying to figure out, um, is that Create Space, Edward, or did you do that some other way? I was trying to work out how that's been published. I can't see it on the page. Uh, well, no, that one's through Create Space. So have you, have you used anybody else but Create Space? No, I haven't. At some point or another, I'll, uh, I'll 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 take a stab at Ingrid Spark, unless this new D to D print thing works out. Yes, of course. Yeah. To uh, you know, yeah, you know, because I recognize that with uh, having it in Create Space means that uh, it's virtually impossible for anybody else to pick it up. So I know that if I want other bookstores to uh, to to grab the book, it has to. I have to move it out of Create Space into something they can, they f- feel uh, safe with. Now, um, something I've learned from being on Kobo is that in Canada, you can price your books a lot higher. So can you, can you talk me through that? Because, um, I've actually, I've actually finally made some blasted money on Kobo, uh, in the past week because I, I've, I've been messing around with prices in, in, in Canada, Australia. And what's the other one? Is it, I don't think it's New Zealand. It's another one where you can price high. What, what are the price differences like in Canada? Because, um, I get the impression that they are higher. The, the first thing to remember is that the Canadian dollar is about twenty. You know, 
25 cents below the American dollar on the uh, exchange rate. So there's automatically a, a bump in price when you're moving from the U.S. to Canada. And then from what I can see, the rest of it is psychology, the old uh, .99 psychology. So actually, if you look at uh, Synergy, I actually priced it at 349 in Canada because I was waffling on my price ranges there. But uh, I, I thought it comes down to here in Canada, we're used to paying a little bit more than the States. It's because their dollars always been below or lower value on the international market. So it, there's automatically a markup. And what of that um, that Kobo factor? Because I can tell you, you know, I'm selling way more books in Canada on Kobo. So so are you aware of Kobo as kind of being a big presence in Canada? Um, well, actually, yeah, because, I mean, they started as a Canadian company and they, and they partnered very early with our major chain. It's called Indirogo Chapters these days. But they partner, you know, it's the uh, Barnes and Noble of Canada, except they seem to be doing a better job of keeping the bottom line straight. Mm-hmm. But again, Kobo, almost from the from out of the gate, partnered with Indigo, so anything that was published on Kobo was available as an ebook in the Indigo chapters on the website, and you could buy the machine at in the store. They'd have displays at the front door where you could buy a Kobo e-reader. Yeah, so that's that's nice, isn't it? And, and, and you're, I think you're Amazon exclusive, aren't you? Or are you wide? No, I'm wide. You are wide, are you? Okay, great. So, so in, in which case then, do you sell more on Kobo, or, or are you like most people? You know, Amazon does most of the business. This is a, a strange way. Until recently, Kobo's the one store I couldn't get any traction on. Um, I'd have to, to look at the numbers again. I mean, I don't have stupendously high numbers, so it's hard to be statistically valid with it. But I've actually sold – it might be until the last uh, round or round of some stuff, I some marketing efforts I made. It might be that Apple is my biggest seller. That's interesting. Well, you've heard me on my podcast saying that Apple's been my big surprise recently. Um, so Apple, right. So, so what are you doing – marketing-wise, then, that would make Apple a, a good performer for you? It's it's hard to sell. Say, I mean, I know that some of my earliest, like my niece bought a book. Of all people, my boss bought a book. Of he was told by he, he was told by one of my coworkers that I had a book out, and he bought it. And he, he purchased it on, you know, on, on Apple, off his iPhone. I think with Apple, because Apple devices are sort of quite expensive, I always find them quite aspirational. I think Apple purchases are also less sensitive to price, is my impression. I don't know whether you agree with that. Everything I've seen about the Apple market tells me that that's yes. I mean, even even their base devices from their iPhone to their to their Macs to their uh, to to their watch. I mean, they get away with uh, humongous markups on everything. Yeah, so I, I do think it is worth trying um, higher price uh, offerings on Apple. Um, that's my experience so far. Um, I just wanted to take you from, from Synergy of Hope, Edward. We, we moved, uh, we've got sort of two other books now. We've got the second novel, uh, Into the Crucible. That was published earlier this year. Is that correct? That's correct. 
So that took, published. took less time to write that one then. So t- tell me kind of why, what you'd learned by the time you came to that second one. I think it, it really came down to I'd learned a lot more about uh, just getting into it, having an idea of where I'm going, which is kind of fun because I ended up doing a plot flip after uh, I had a content edit done on it. But I had a better idea of where I was going on it. And I had a better idea of the need to dedicate myself to actually doing the writing rather than, I mean, Synergy, one of the reasons it took so long is I did run into the, oh, the muse isn't here today. I'm going to go do something else. And with Into the Crucible, I had more of an idea of saying, you know what? I have to write something here. Even if it's just a couple hundred words, I have to put something on paper and move it forward. I can't just let the muse take another day off because I'm not going to get anywhere. And I admit at this point, I started hearing all this talk about having to write faster. You're already hearing about people writing four, six books a a year. And you know, that's a, a, a rather scary proposition. I'm sitting here saying, well, I'm never going to get six books done in a year. But I do have to up my pace if I'm going to get more books out there. So did you feel more of a confident writer, you know, the second time round? then? Did you feel like you kind of got a firmer grasp of what was required? Yes, I did. You know, back to, you know, that big developmental edit I had done on Synergy. And I did have a line edit done after that. So I uh, got myself immersed in in, in a professionals looking at my material rather than just handing it off to fellow writers to critique. So I had gotten again a uh, a better feel for what the uh, professional end of the market needed. And then you've also written One's World. Now, this is a kind of um, a sort of entry-level, uh, I think, uh, uh, book. Is it, it's, I think it's probably quite shorter, is it, this one? Oh, it, it's literally a short story, 2,800 words. And all it does is it well, – the whole point of it was to introduce a reader to my general writing style and, uh, and to tease into, my, into the universe I've created. So I'm sensing if you knew to write something like that, you, you're kind of picking up kind of marketing tricks now. You know, this this kind of idea that, um, you know, you need to give something away, well, not give something away, but make something cheap, try and get people on board so that they buy the more expensive thing. Is this, is this the beginning of marketing in your world? I would say, yeah, that's the first really big step towards marketing because you'll also notice, though, I've had the fight with Amazon on this one. It's free everywhere but Amazon. And Amazon refuses to keep it uh, the, the price matched. So when I go, maybe other people are going on there and finding it for free. But when I go into Amazon and look, it's at 99 cents. And I can't get Amazon, in my mind, to market as free so that it matches all the other, you know, on Kobo and on Nook and on iBooks and even on Tolino over there in Germany. It's free. Yeah, and you know I've got caught with this recently. It's 99 pence in the UK. And I've just checked it in the States now. It's uh, So, yeah, it is It is still priced. And um, you're not the first 
one. You know, I've had that experience too. And I was speaking to somebody else who's just joined me in my Patreon account too, who was telling me she had a terrible trouble, get, you know, getting it reduced down to zero for a promotion. So there do seem to be some bizarre things. And, and as you say, there's a poster price match, aren't they? So if you show them evidence of, of Kobo and Apple being free, they're supposed to match that. It's part of their policy as, as far as I understood it. It's kind of strange, though, because even when I did succeed in getting it free for a while, I got this email back from them that had sort of this nasty undercurrent of saying, well, we've price matched for you, but we really don't like this and you shouldn't be doing it. So that, you know, some official email, I'd have to drag it out of my out of the folders to find it. But so it it the impression to me is, again, Amazon doesn't want us pricing this stuff free. And I'm surprised that so many people have succeeded in having perma-free books on, uh, on Amazon. It must be very frustrating for you, though, because, well, I know, I know you, Apple's been doing well for you, but uh, you, Amazon generally is where people can, can make some decent money. Um, and to, to not have it free, I mean, I think my impression is perma-free still works, you know, even, in a, even if it's in a, in a lesser way. So is that like that is a perpetual frustration I'm guessing for you? Well, it is because that's the one place where I've gotten a couple of complaints of people saying, "Well, I can't get this story for free. You're offering it for free, but I can't get it on on my Kindle for free." Mm-hmm. It's annoying. Yeah, you know, it's annoying. You know, they're complaining. You know, so it's a 2,800 word short story. What are you doing pricing it at 99 cents? You know, as if it's my fault. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it's the, it's the joys of listing on Amazon, I guess. Um, I'm interested to, to explore, Edwin, how you're selling the books, you know, how you're marketing the books, particularly as you're wide. What sort of techniques do you use to, to sell copies? In reality, I'm still in the, in the hole on this one. I'm struggling with the whole thing. I've, you know, my, you know, I've mentioned earlier that my, when you get down to it, my sale number, my sale numbers are statistically insignificant. And uh, I, I started out, people were telling me, oh, get onto Twitter, get on the Facebook, and make a name for yourself, and then people will just flood in. Now, you hear these days that uh, social media doesn't do well. I tried a couple of bargain booksies and got a little bit of a boost from them. Recently, I started experimenting with BookBub ads. But I don't know what's going on with them because I'm offering them money, and uh, the statistic I have say that they're they're just not sending my ad out to people. I don't know what the the statistic you know how many how many books you sh- or how many clicks you should expect for every 100 impressions. But my impressions are only in a couple of thousand. Have you tried targeting specific authors, uh, or are you going just for to sort of you know impressions across the board? Because um, um, as I think I talked to Adam Croft about this. I mean, he seemed to think targeting authors who have big number of followers in your genre is quite a good strategy. Have, have you tried that? What 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 are you going for on BookBub? Um, I've I've moved into that, but so far it hasn't done anything that I'd call stupendous. Because maybe I'm not. Uh, I need to widen the range of authors that I want to. I, I, I want to uh, target, but even that one becomes difficult because I'm I write a, a clean soft science fiction. I'm more into the characters than the tech, 
so you, you get these these big sellers who you know you get a lot of the military and a lot of the really heavy tech stuff but i don't see those readers light liking my lighter touch so have you identified what kind of you know if if i said it's also bots really isn't it who would who who would be in your also bots do you think as a as a sci-fi writer see and that's the well that's where i'm struggling to a degree i can see somebody like genie kosh with her alien series to a degree i can see uh chris longknife fans except they tend to uh flow heavy into the military at times during the story mind you those are bigger uh traditionally published authors and they don't have a big uh, they don't have a big book bug and uh for most of the other authors i know they're smaller and they don't again they don't have large book bug presences and stuff like that so i've been you know sort of struggling on maybe it's my own attitude cuz i like to read a lot wide and i like to read uh authors who are on the side rather than the same 10 people everybody else is reading <laughs> so maybe i'm shooting my own myself in the foot there by not getting into some of these bigger authors now we're in the um the fantastic 21st century you're not back in 1995 or pre-internet days um where are you going edwin to sort of you know find out best practice uh you know learn what everybody else is doing find out how to do book bads you know all that kind of thing where do you go to learn about this stuff um my biggest source these days is podcast i have a fairly hefty commute and in the early days of knowing this i have this commute i looked at it and said how can i make the best best use of this time and podcast came up as the perfect answer you could get I mean, what is it right now? I'm look every week. I've got thirty eight podcasts that I'm listening to. How many? Thirty eight. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm I'm only listening to them at one point three times. So I'm not one of these real super listeners. But I'm in the car often enough doing things that every time I get in the car, I I queue up my next podcast. Yeah, you know, and, and that's how you know, I found even you. But I was looking for oh somebody mentioned this this new podcast I hadn't heard about I'm going to give them a try. Well you're you're very welcome and I'm I'm very pleased to have you as a listener because you you're very uh, sort of active on Twitter and things like that which is always nice. Always nice to know there's somebody there. Um so thank you for that. I I got to ask you about um I was um I I found when I was kind of you know digging around like I do before we we chat. Um I found that you'd been on a um and I can't read my writing here. it's the book something podcast book speak speaking podcast uh, right? the, the 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 book speaks podcast yes i can't read my the fellow hasn't that the fellow hasn't uh, done any episode for quite a while i'm not quite certain happened i know he was doing some uh, u- university stuff and he had to stop but what he did what he was doing is he was offering to read basically your first chapter uh, uh, on the pa- podcast so the It's not a professional level audiobook is just him reading it for the podcast. But uh yeah, chapter 1 of Synergy of Hopes was done somewhere around episode 40 or 44 somewhere in there. So there's actually, you know, th- th- this gentleman read the 
the, the first chapter of my novel on his, on his podcast for anybody to listen to. That's nice to have. And the other thing I found of you is um, on YouTube. And I could, don't ask me where I found these because I did this a week or two ago before we chatted. But I've also found you um, on YouTube doing a book pitch try. Now, I, now I think you go to book conferences, don't you, in, in Vancouver or the area. Um, how, how did this come about? It came about um, we have two or we now have two conferences a year that that I go to. One of them is called Creative Ink Fest, and it's a writers festival. So it's not just or so it's not just science fiction and fantasy, though there are a lot of people there. But yeah, you know, I've sat in on 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 the romance, and I've sat sat in on the mystery and the crime panels and stuff like that, which is fun. But the other one we have is called Vcon, and it's the uh, oldest running science fiction and fantasy fan con in North America. I believe it's North America, not just Canada. But it's always had a strong writer track to it as well. So as things stand right, those are my two must-attend cons of the year. And how beneficial do you find it to be you know, among other authors? Do you, is that something you'd recommend to somebody who was starting out in writing? I would say yes. I mean, I would say this is something I wish I'd known about earlier. Mind you, Creative Ink Fest is relatively new. But again, VCon, like I said, they just did 42. And they have gaps in their years. So it's actually 45 years or something to go. That, and it's been here all along. And I wish I'd known about it. I wish I'd kn- and that I'd uh, gone to them. Having actual people that you can see, talk to, sit with, interchange with at panels – see in the hallway. And for me, at least, I've encountered this strange thing that I suddenly realized that people are recognizing me and saying hello. When before, I would just be another face in the crowd. And so I I would say, at least for somebody like me, having that personal interaction level is, is completely different than going online it's lovely it's lovely that you've got those on your doorstep the, the other thing i got to talk to you about edwin while you're on is rabbits um because you you post love you know lovely pictures of rabbits we all love rabbits what what, what is it what is it you're doing with the rabbits because you you put quite a lot of this on social media and uh and it's very very interesting to see um well, at the moment, uh, we're linked up with a number of small animal rescue groups here in the Lower Mainland. And at the moment, we've got eight rescue rabbits in our care. Plus, some of those pictures would have been there's a big rabbit rescue across the river from where I live, where at the moment, they've got about 50 rabbits. And every day, somebody has to go out there and uh, feed them and give them clean water and make sure they've got fresh hay and their litter boxes are all taken care of. So one of the things I've done is uh, volunteer to to go over there. I'm doing it tomorrow, in fact. Go over there and do rabbit care. And, and is there a reason you're a rabbit man rather than a dog man or a cat man or anything like that? Well, you, you, you have to blame my daughter for that one. She's the one that got the rabbit thing. I mean, uh, she's got stuffed rabbits coming out of everywhere. And then somebody was saying, well... You know, we got this rabbit. We can't care for this rabbit. This was 20 years ago now. We're going to release this rabbit into the wild. 
And we're looking. You can't take a domestic rabbit and throw it in the wild because the first thing that's going to happen is a coyote's going to get it. So we said, yes, we'll take this rabbit. And it just mushroomed from there. Well, it's very entertaining to see the, the rabbit updates. I thoroughly enjoy seeing them. And, you know, it's like cats, dogs, rabbits. You know, animals are lovely to see on social media. Always very positive, uh, you know, and, and lovely to see them. Um, we'll, we'll finish off. I just must ask you, you know, you, you've been really committed to this. You know, a 20-year gestation period for a first book is is remarkable. You know, I, I, I look at some people's tenacity with books and, could you know, could only admire it because it's a long, long journey to get that first book. What what are your plans next, Edward, with with the books? You've got the the sort of the two out. You've frustratedly got this one that Amazon won't put free. Where where are you going with this? Do you have a a game plan with this? Um, well, I am now working on book three, so that is in the works, and I'm setting up the 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 foundations at the beginning because I had some ideas, but the end of book two sort of kiboshed my original ideas, so I've had to re re-rig how, how it started. But so, yeah, I, I've got at least one more book that, I, that I've gotten. I've got a whole series of other ideas that can come into play at some point. So this, this is going to continue. I mean, at, at my age, I'm sort of looking at it and saying, well, if I can get enough books out there to generate enough income to supplement my retirement when it comes along, because I'm one of those people who I don't understand the concept of retirement. I don't understand what you're going to do after retire. The only thing I do understand is being older and doing physical labor. Issues are arising that 10 years ago I would have just ignored, and now they're knocking me out. So at some point or another, I have to move away from physical labor and into something that's less physically stressful. So I, I, I see myself I see myself doing an Asimov and dying with a pen in hand. That was sci-fi author Edwin Downward, and you can find out more about Edwin by checking out the show notes for this episode, number 131, at selfpublishingjourneys.com. There'll be another episode of Paul's Podcast Diary this coming Saturday. Until then, bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.